Amen, amen. Before we pray together, would you just remember those that were very directly affected by the flooding this last week? I know there are some of our own family that have been impacted directly and have been in a motel for the last several days, and we want to remember them. Also, to give you an update and just remember in your prayers, Will, who's at Southern at Seminary, his midterms coming up, and just in giving me an update this last week, said thank you to his church family for your faithful praying for him, but just ask that we be remembering him this coming week as he takes tests and continues to study. So would you, to those ends, pray with me as we continue in worship now? Father, we, we praise you that we serve a God that is sovereign over all things. Father, for whom there are no surprises, no accidents. Lord, the flooding of this last week did not catch you by surprise. Lord, you have been in control the entire time. Father, working together all things for your glory and our good. And Father, our fallen minds are unable to see the good that you are intending to bring about in the midst of what seems trying and difficult times. Lord, the evidences of sin are so very clearly realized in those moments as we see what is around us and, and just have no understanding or way to comprehend how this could possibly be good. But God, we serve a God who is good, and we know that to be true because your word says it so. Lord, and not only does your word declare it to be so, but Father, we in our own lives have experienced it. And we see just constantly how you, faithful to your word, work out all things for good. And so, Father, we thank you that as we continue in worship, that the God that we serve hasn't changed since the moment we begun this service. He hasn't changed from when time was first created because he spoke it into being. God, you are unchanging and you are good, and you love us, and your love endures forever. Father, thank you that like your love, your word stands forever, and we have your word in the Bible, the living word of Jesus, God, re re reminding us of all that you are, and all that you desire that we be about, so that we might glorify you, O oh God, and enjoy you forever. And so as we turn now to a portion of our service where we specifically look to this word, God, I pray that your spirit that inspired these words would speak to our hearts, that, Lord, your words would be what we hear this morning in a way that brings us to a deeper appreciation of your grace and of our need of your grace each and every day and of how, God, you alone are worthy of our praise. And Lord, we might give you praise through this time, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, would you open them and find the book of 1 Samuel? 1 Samuel and find chapter 9. If you're visiting with us today or if you were away last week, just know that we've begun a new series entitled King of Kings, which I am particularly excited about. I've said this over and over over the last few weeks, particularly last week as we got started. But just know we've started this new series entitled King of Kings, where over the coming 12 weeks, we're going to be journeying together through the Old Testament books of First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, the Chronicles, and we're going to be studying together the kings of Israel, their presidents, if you will, who while all appointed by God, anointed by men, were but a foretaste of the prophesied King of Kings, Jesus. And so, so that's 
where we're headed this morning. And last week, we began by setting the stage for all they were going to encounter together by studying the meeting of the elders of Israel with Samuel, the prophet. And the people there request a king. And even though this request appears innocent in its initial, uh, initial presentation, it's rooted in rebellion. The people had rejected God as their king. And as they had time and time before, they'd, they'd turn their hearts to other gods, to the, the practices of the surrounding nations. And so God, in His grace and love, gave the people of Israel what they desired. But He warned them, in so doing, of all that would come. And so sadly, these people they didn't even hear these words of rebuke. So stubborn were their hearts, rigid their resolve. And so Samuel sent them home. And that's how he concluded. That was the end of it. And we concluded with this warning of God ringing in our ears that, that our present hope for ourselves as the church, for our nation, our country, isn't in a presidential nominee or a senate or a congress. It's, it isn't in any political entity or, or an earthly king, but it is solely in the king of kings who is Jesus. And so this morning, we pick back up with the story in chapter 9, there, First Samuel in verse 1, where we're about to meet together the first king of Israel who is King Saul. And before I read, let me just go ahead and warn you that there's, we've got a lot, <laughs> a lot to cover today. And in truth, in this entire series, because we have like 21 kings to cover over a period of only 12 weeks. Now, in, in all truth, not all of the kings and their reigns are described in detail, and so we're probably going to double up on a few that are mentioned sort of in passing, but there are others who receive a much more significant mention, as with our subject today, who is Saul. And so with that said, I want us to dive into our text, 1 Samuel chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, where we're going to see our first point for this morning, and that is Saul selected as king. Saul selected as king. Our text starts, there was a Benjamite by a man of standing whose name was Kish, son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Becherath, the son of Ephiah, of Benjamin. He had a son named Saul, an impressive young man without equal among the Israelites, a head taller than any of the others. If you have a pen, if you have a highlight or a pencil, I want you to underline that verse right there, verse 2. Highlight it for me because we're going to come back to it in a little bit, but highlight verse 2 right there. And then look to verse 3. Now the donkeys belonging to Saul's father, Kish, were lost. And Kish said to his son Saul, take one of the servants with you and go look for the donkeys. So he passed through the hill country of Ephraim, through the area around Shalisha, but they didn't find them. They went on to the district of Shalim, but the donkeys were not there. Then he passed through the territory of Benjamin, but they did not find them. When they reached the district of Zuf, Saul said to the servant who was with him, Come, let's go back, or my father will stop thinking about the donkeys and start worrying about us. But the servant replied, Look, in this town there's a man of God. He's highly respected, and everything he says comes true. Let's go there now. Perhaps he will tell us which way to take. And if you have that highlighter handy, still, I want you to highlight that verse right there, verse 6. Underline verse 6, because we're going to come back to it, just like we did with verse 2. But then verse 7 goes on. Saul says to his servant, Well, if we go, what can we give to the man? The food in our sacks is gone. We have no gift to take to the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered him again. Look, he said, I have a quarter of a shekel of silver. I will give it to the man of God so that he will tell us what way to take. Formerly in Israel, if a man went to inquire of God, he would say, come, let's go to the seer, because the prophet of today used to be called a seer. Good, Saul said to his servant, come, let's go. And so they set out for the town where the man of God was. As they were going up to the hill of the town, they met some girls coming down to draw water. And they asked them, is the seer here? He is, they answered. 
He's ahead of you. Hurry now. He's just come to our town today, for the people have a sacrifice at the high place to eat. The people will not begin eating until he comes, because he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Go up now. You should find him about this time. They went up to the town, and as they were entering it, there was Samuel coming toward them on his way up to the high place. Now, the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed this to Samuel. About this time tomorrow, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. Anoint him leader over my people Israel. He will deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines. I have looked upon my people, for their cry has reached me. I want you to highlight those two verses for me real quick. 15 and 16. Get that pen out, highlighter. 15 and 16. We just read. And then we read verse 17. When Samuel caught sight of Saul... The Lord said to him, this is the man I spoke to you about. He will govern my people. And let's let's pause right there for just a moment and may God bless the public reading of his word. So what we have in this text is an introduction to the first king of Israel that is rather insightful. And so what I want us to do is go back to those three verses that you hopefully underlined just a moment ago. And I want to make three observations before we move on. With the first observation being this, the significance of, of Saul's stature, the significance of Saul's stature. You notice how the writer there describes Saul as being impressive? (laughs) At least that's how the NIV renders this adjective. If you've got a Holman or if you have an ESV, it reads handsome. Now, whichever word you decide to go with, the point remains, Saul is easy on the eyes. And not only is this dude hot, he's huge. He's a head taller than everyone else in Israel. This description, read literally, is from his shoulders and up higher than any of the people. Saul, if you want to say it, is like a Disney prince. He's tall, he's young, he's muscle-bound, he's got this big smile that will weaken your knees and just melt your hearts, right, ladies? I mean, this, this, and you ever notice, just as a point of interest, how height is so often linked to leadership? And granted, this pairing isn't exclusive, and so not being a sociologist, I can't speak with any authority on this matter, but as I was preparing for this message, I did a little research, and I discovered a recent study that was done by a cohort of psychologists at the University of Virginia with some professors from the University of Amsterdam in Holland, and they tested an hypothesis, an hypothesis that, quote, taller individuals are judged as more leader-like by potential followers, and that this effect is driven by traits which observers automatically link to people of a certain physical height, namely health, dominance, as well as intelligence. Now, unsurprisingly, at least in my opinion, and I'll explain why a little bit on, the group's results confirm this hypothesis. Ha! So, what we read here is a recently scientifically proven fact that stature significantly affects how a leader is viewed. And as God goes about selecting his people's first sovereign, guess what he does? He does it in a manner that they will find satisfying, whether they knew why or not. They did. A point. This becomes spiritually significant a little later on when we get to the second king of Israel. But for right now, all I want us to be and see in Saul's selection as king, I want us to note the significance of his stature. Saul is a specimen. He is a specimen, but even at this stage, notice Saul's insensitivity to spiritual matters. The second point of observation, Saul's insensitivity to spiritual matters. Look back with me to that second verse that we underlined a little bit ago, verse 6. Verse 6, you notice who it is that mentions the, the, the man of God and then seeks, you know, suggests seeking divine direction? And sadly, it isn't Saul, is it? It's his servant. 
And Saul's exhausted his physical resources, and he's come up empty. And so being a good son, he recognizes that the longer that he and his servants stay away, the more likely it is that his father is going to begin to worry about the two of them. But it could also be, and I don't want to be unnecessarily critical of Saul here, but it, it is quite possible that Saul's motivation here is, as he states, verse 7, we don't have any food left. And so he's primarily concerned with himself. He is, this is self-preservation here, selfish concern. And if that's what it is, and I think that's what it is, it surfaces again when we get to chapter 13, as we'll see. But, but for right here, simply notice the juxtaposition of, of the physical with the spiritual in Saul. Because church, how, how often, sadly, do we face this very reality? Considering a candidate for a position, we're presented with a, an individual who's physically impressive, you know, the resume regales us of lists upon lists of their accolades or accomplishments and abilities. And so we, we give them our vote, but in so doing, we fail to know, or at least to allow to carry any weight in our consideration, the spiritual maturity of that person. And I know that there are probably some that would argue, well, Andrew, I, I get that, but if you were sick with cancer or your child was dying, would you want the, the, the world's leading expert, although an unbeliever, to perform the surgery, or would you go with a Christian doctor? You know, would you vote for the Christian or the more qualified by the world's standards? And at church, I believe God gives us the answer to this question in our story. And so, having seen the significance of Saul's stature there, contrast by his sad insensitivity to spiritual matters, I want us to now note that third thing, that first that we underline there, 15 and 16. Go back to those. And I want us to see the truth there that God acts to fulfill His plans, not our petitions. God acts to fulfill His plans, not our petitions. Because what's clear there from verse 15-16 is that Saul's selection as king is based on God's plan and priorities, not the petition of his people. Because you notice Samuel, he's simply going about his business when God comes to him and informs him that he's about to run into the one that he, God, has selected who is going to deliver my people, as he states, from the hand of the Philistines. Now, if you're reading closely, then there might be a few of us at this point who begin to object because the last half of verse 16, if you look at it, states, God states that I have looked upon my people for their cry has reached me. And so based on this response of God, well, we might be tempted to read God's action in selecting Saul as serving to fulfill the cry of His people. But let me show you why this line of reasoning just will not stand, cannot stand. In the book of Ezekiel, the prophet is sitting in exile in Babylon some 430 years after Saul was king. And as he, Ezekiel, recounts to the elders that have come to see him the reasons for all that they are experiencing at that time in exile, in chapter 20, Ezekiel the prophet describes the trials of the Israelites and the responses of God. And four times in Ezekiel chapter 20, he describes God's motivation as for the sake of my name, I did what would keep it from being profaned in the eyes of the nations they, that's the Israelites, lived among, and in whose sight I had revealed myself to be God to the Israelites by bringing them out of Egypt. In every instance in which God acted to save His people, His action was driven not by concern for the cries of His people, but rather for the glory of His name. Now, just, just for a second, where you are in 1 Samuel 9, I want you to flip over a couple pages and find 1 Samuel 12. Because I want you to see this same reality, not ironically or coincidentally, but divinely appointed in the book of Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 12, and look at verse 21. 
Find verse 21. This is Samuel's farewell speech to the people in which he reminds them of their sin in demanding a king. And when they cry out, they say, pray, pray to the Lord your God for your servants so that we will not die. Why? For we've added to all our other sins the evil of asking for a king. And then notice what Samuel says, verse 21. Do not turn away after useless idols. They can do you no good, nor can they rescue you because they're useless. For the sake of what? His great name, the Lord will not reject His people because He was pleased to make you His own. <laughs> wow. And church, I pray that we can see this truth this morning and begin to grasp its implications for us today because what this does not mean, this does not mean that God is unconcerned about you. We know that God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. So clearly, God loves you. But, but God's love for you, friends, and the lengths to which He went to demonstrate said love for you is not motivated by your worth, your, your intrinsic value, your stature of spirituality. And this is a good thing. Why? I'm glad you asked. Well, for those of us not endowed with the stature of Saul, you know, super spiritual, say, like a Samuel, talented like a musician, like Irma or Corky or, you know, an Olympic athlete or a writer. Our God's love for us is not dependent upon us. Rather, it is wholly because of who He is and His desire to show the greatness of His name. Praise God. Church, our, the gospel is the ultimate act of God's jealousy for His great name. Isn't it simply mind-blowing how he can take a sinful request? God can take a sinful request like the desire to have a king or a sinful life like mine or like yours. And he can redeem them such that our Savior came from the kingly line of David and that now in Christ we who by faith receive him are sons and daughters of God. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? So here is the awesomeness of our God. Saul selected as king, where his physical stature is significant, but he's insensitive to spiritual matters, and yet God still acts to fulfill his plans, not his people's petitions. But now I want us to skip a little ways here in Saul's career. So I want you to skip with me to where we can see Saul serve as king. Saul serve as king. So flip over with your Bibles to, to 1 Samuel chapter 11. If you were in 12, go back one, but find 1 Samuel 11. I want you to look at verse 1. 1 Samuel 11, verse 1. It's at this point that Saul has been anointed. He's been presented as king. And while most of Israel have received him as such, there are a few that are referred to in the last verse of chapter 10 as troublemakers. They despise him. And so it's at this point that our story picks up. Look at verse 1 there, 1 Samuel 11. Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to him, Make a treaty with us, and we will be subject to you. But Nahash the Ammonite replied, I will make a treaty with you only on the condition that I gouge out the right eye of every one of you and so bring disgrace on all Israel. His elders of Jabez said to him, Give us seven days so we can send messengers throughout Israel and if no one comes to rescue us, we'll surrender to you. Well, when the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and reported these terms to the people, they wept aloud. Then Saul just then was returning from the fields behind his oxen and he asked, what is wrong with the people? Why are they weeping? Then they repeated to him what the men of Jabesh had said. When Saul heard their words, the Spirit of God came upon him in power, and he burned with anger. He took a pair of oxen, cut them into pieces, and sent the pieces by messenger 
throughout Israel proclaiming, this is what will be done to the oxen of anyone who does not follow Saul and Samuel. Then the terror of the Lord fell on the people and they turned out as one man. When Saul mustered them at Bezek, the, peop- the men of Israel numbered 300,000 and the men of Judah 30,000. They told the messengers who had come, say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, by the time the sun is hot tomorrow, you will be delivered. When the messengers went and reported this to the men of Jabesh, they were elated. They said to the Ammonites, tomorrow we'll surrender to you and you can do to us whatever you, you seem to think is good. The next day, Saul separated his men into three divisions during the last watch of the night. They broke into the camp of the Ammonites and slaughtered them until the heat of the day. Those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. The people said to Samuel, Who was it that asked, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring these men to us and we will put them to death. But Saul said, No one shall be put to death today, for this day the Lord has rescued Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there reaffirm the kingship. So all the people went to Gilgal and confirmed Saul as king in the presence of the Lord. There they sacrificed fellowship offerings before the Lord, and Saul and the Israelites held a great celebration. This is the word of the Lord. And this, this, in this second point here, where Saul serves as king, there are two things that I believe we need to see together. With the first being this, the presence of God's Spirit upon Saul. The presence of God's Spirit upon Saul. In verse 6, there in 1 Samuel 11, if you want to underline this verse, you can, but you notice there how the Spirit is described as coming upon Saul in power. This is as it's described of the judges, such as Othniel in Judges chapter 3 and verse 10, where it says that the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. Another example of judges is Jephthah in Judges eleven twenty nine, and a number of others. But Saul here is filled by God's Spirit. And it leads him to two specific responses. First is righteous anger. A righteous anger. And I describe the anger here expressed by Saul as righteous because while I am certain that Saul was troubled by the physical threats that are directed towards the inhabitants there of Jabesh Gilead, when it's mentioned in conjunction with the Spirit of God, this anger is clearly a holy anger. This is an anger at the audacity of these unbelieving Ammonites to offend the God of Israel. So Saul, one, is righteously angry. But then a second evidence of the Spirit of God coming upon Saul is that he issues a royal summons. He issues a royal summons for all of Israel. Saul sends out this message to all the men of Israel to muster under his leadership. And what I find amusing in this request, and I say it's amusing only because we live so far removed from the time in which all of this took place, but Saul's message is delivered along with a visual aid just to assist anybody that might have been wavering in their allegiance. And church, I would imagine that as we consider these responses of Saul, that we would be quick to acknowledge that the attributes he's exhibiting here are both desirable and kingly, aren't they? Oh, to have a leader who who is so filled with the Spirit of God and passionate for the glory of God that he calls out with authority the people of God so they might stand as one. Now, I doubt that any of us would appreciate receiving, say, like a chicken leg in the mailbox when you receive this call out, right? And I only say chicken leg because I don't know of anybody that keeps anything bigger than a chicken. But I mean, I doubt that any of us would feel well and warm and fuzzy about receiving something like that. But the point is, in these responses of Saul, we see a young man filled by the Spirit of God, passionate for the glory of God, and keenly attuned to the Word of God keenly attuned. And the second thing I believe we see, not only is it the presence of God's Spirit within Saul, 
but a humble, or upon Saul, but a humble spirit within Saul. The presence of God's spirit upon Saul. Now notice this humble spirit within Saul. Look at verse 13 there in 1 Samuel 11. People are ready to slaughter those that I mentioned earlier that were referred to as troublemakers if you look back to the end of chapter 10, verse 27. And so hot on the heels of this victory of the Ammonites with celebrity status and the support of all his constituents, instead of getting revenge for his injured pride, Saul says, no one will be put to death today. For this day, the Lord rescued Israel. Saul acknowledges that his victory was from God. He, he directs then all his newfound fans, his, his, his subjects, to their true king. And unafraid of them, he opposes their plan and he leads them to conclude the day in celebration together before the presence of the Lord rather than in sorrow gathered around freshly dug graves that they've recently filled with their bodies, the bodies of their compatriots. And guys, what a, what a beautiful thing a humble spirit is within a leader. What a desirable quality, and yet how, sadly, how rare. And just as a mental exercise, can anybody think of a, a current leader or a recent leader that you might describe as humble? You know, a president, maybe, or a world leader that comes to mind? I mean, we might be sitting here for quite a while, unfortunately. But yet, we hear, we see Saul reflecting humility, and his citizenry love him for it. And so we began looking at Saul's selection as king. We then have considered Saul's service as king. For our final point this morning, I want us to see together and watch as Saul stumbles as king. Saul stumbles as king. So I want you to flip over with me to chapter 13. I mentioned we'd get there a little bit later. So here we are. Chapter 13, 1 Samuel 13, and I want you to look at verse 1. 1 Samuel 13, verse 1. And our writer writes, So Saul was 30 years old when he became king. He reigned over Israel Forty-two years. Saul chose 3,000 men from Israel. 2,000 were with him at Michmash and in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gibeah and Benjamin. The rest of the men he sent back to their homes. Jonathan attacked the Philistine outpost at Geba, and the Philistines heard about it. Then Saul had the trumpet blown throughout the land and said, Let the Hebrews hear. So all Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost, and now Israel has become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. Just as a, a word here at this point, remember textually the very last time in Scripture that Saul and the Israelites were at Gilgal gathered, they were fearlessly celebrating a victory over the Ammonites. And they were worshiping confidently in the presence of the Lord. So just keep that in mind. Look at verse 5. The Philistines assembled to fight Israel. And with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of beth Aven. When the men of Israel saw that their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived. And Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? Asked Samuel. Saul replied, when I saw the men were scattering and that you didn't come at the set times and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I've not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You acted foolishly, Samuel said. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God. If you had, 
then you, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. And again, may God bless his word read publicly. In this final passage, we're informed of how and of why Saul falls short of being the king. And it's no coincidence, I think, that Saul's sad stumble takes place at the same site of his greatest victory there in Gilgal. You know, how Saul has changed. How he has changed. In the years between visits, gone is the presence of God's Spirit. Gone is Saul's zeal for the glory of God. Gone is his humility before God. And then with these significant departures, gone is his people's confidence in his leadership. Gone is their sense of security. And then gone is their joy in the presence of the Lord. And gone, unfortunately, is our time. And so we can't really look at the three excuses of Saul gives here for his actions, which are nothing more than weak attempts to deny his responsibility as king and blame others for his sin, nor do we have time to consider the arrogance, not to mention the audacity of his disobedience displayed as he offers the burnt offering before the Lord, which is an act to be performed solely by the priests according to Numbers chapter 18, verse 7. But church, what I hope and pray is clear is how far Saul fell from what God desired of his king. And therefore, just as Samuel prophesied, your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and appointed him leader of his people, because you have not kept the Lord's command. So as we close, let me, let me just attempt to try to tie together all that we have seen this morning together, using these last words of Samuel. When we began, we noted how so often leadership is linked to physical stature. And Saul surely fit this bill. We, we also noted how often as men and women, we fail to consider the spiritual depth and maturity of leadership candidates, choosing, choosing to overlook that which we can't see, for that which we can. And yet, the beauty of our God and His gospel is that He sees our hearts. He, he's able to take what is weak in the eyes of, of the world, weak in the eyes of, of, of men, and use it to shame the strong. He, he's able to take sinful decisions, such as the decision for a king, and redeem it for His purpose, for the glory of His name. He took Israel's, like we've seen, desire for a king, and threw it, he brings about the coronation of the king of kings. And Saul began well, but he failed to heed the word of God. He became arrogant in the face of God and so dishonored the glory of God. And even though he looked great from the outside, his heart had become ugly and proud. By contrast, think of this. The king of kings, Jesus, we're told had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him yet. He took up our infirmities. He was carried our sorrows. He, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, our sin. The punishment that brought us peace was on Christ. And church, it's in this, la this last lesson, I pray, what we may heed from the life of Saul, the leadership of Saul. And the last lesson is this, that life isn't about the outside, how we appear to the world. It is all about the heart. God isn't interested in what you look like to those who can see you from the outside because he, he knows your hearts. His concern is that His name be glorified. And if all we do is give lip service to our love for Him while our hearts are far from Him, then we will have missed out on the very essence of life. 
And the beautiful truth of the gospel is that King Jesus transforms our hearts. He doesn't bring change that simply is imposed from the outside. He brings change that begins in the inside and works its way to the outside. He gives us new hearts by His grace, which we receive by faith so that we might be forever sons and daughters of God. It's not about what we do. It's about what He has done for us. It's His grace and grace alone that brings us into salvation. And church, I hope and pray that every single person here, as we heard Cotter and Emily share of their experience with divine grace, that you've had that same encounter. It might not be that you can point to a specific moment, but over a course of your life, you can look back and see how your life has changed. How do we know that you love Jesus? You obey Him. How do you know what Jesus desires you do that you might obey Him? His Word. Are we men and women of the Word? Friends, God alone looks at the heart. And only He can change your heart. Has He changed your heart this morning? I hope and pray He has. Would you pray with me as we conclude our service? God, we praise You. That salvation is not determined by our worthiness or some intrinsic value that we possess. God, Your grace is because You are a God of grace. Your love is because You are love. God is love. And this is how we know what love is, that You sent Your Son, Jesus, to die for us. Father, we thank You for the Gospel, that You sent Jesus to die for us. According to the Scriptures, be buried in a tomb for three days and then rise again according to the Scriptures so that whoever believes in Jesus might not perish but would have eternal life. And Father, this is gospel. This is good news because each and every one of us has fallen short of Your glory. We are all sinners and have done that which separates us from God such that we cannot be reconciled to the God in whom there is life on our own. Only You can bring that about. And you do, God, by your grace. If it was up to us, Lord, we would be lost forever. And if we could make it on our own, then we would not need you, God. We would then be God. But we praise you for the gospel of grace. Father, thank you that as we see in the life of Saul, it's not about the outside, but it's about the inside. And you see the inside, Lord. So I pray that you would urge us as your people, encourage us and strengthen us, God, to live without masks, to be authentic because only you see the hearts. So there's no need for us to pretend. There's no need to play a game of church and religion because the only one that matters is you. Lord, and each and every one of us will face you in the end. So God, while we have opportunity as your church to encourage and walk alongside, hold accountable, to, to, to minister to one another in times of need, may we not wear masks and pretend but let our hearts be evident to all so that we might show the world the grace that God has saved us by so that they too might know the hope that they may have. Father, and then give us the words to speak and lead them, point them, direct them to the God of the gospel. Father, we thank you and praise you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.